This is Herb Montgomery with Renewed Heart Ministries, and I want to welcome you to episode 206 of the Jesus for Everyone podcast. Our feature text this week is Sayings Gospel Q 12, 11 through 12, and our title is Hearings Before Synagogues. Uh, our, our feature text states, when they bring you before synagogues, do not be anxious about how or what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that hour what you are to say. Our companion texts are Matthew 10, 19, but when they arrest you, do not worry about what what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say. And Luke 12, 11 through 12, when you're brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourself or what you'll say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Let's talk about synagogues first this week. Uh, Rome referred to the synagogue as a a Jewish public school. You can find that in in Josephus's uh, Antiquities of the Jews, and I'll put a link to it uh, in or a reference to it in this week's e-site. But the Book of Acts describes synagogues as places of religious worship and instruction, and these were places for the local community to assemble for various reasons, for social, intellectual, and, and spiritual reasons. Today, Jewish synagogues are overseen by rabbis, but but uh, uh, in the first century synagogues, they, they didn't have leadership or, or rabbinical leadership, rather. Um, that, that rabbi, rabbinical leadership didn't become universal till sometime in the Middle Ages. And one of the ways Rome kept the peace in the territories it, it conquered, and we've covered this in the past, was by working closely through the territory's religious institutions. So the synagogues, uh, though much more uh, much more local involvement would have been done in the temple in Jerusalem, uh, the synagogues would have played a part in, in the Roman occupation. And also keep in mind that, that in first century Jewish society, strict divisions between political and civil and religious life, those didn't exist. There wasn't this separation of church and state ideology like we have today. Um, It was was much more, these were much more intertwined, as they often are even unspokenly in our time today. And this week's saying is an encouragement to followers of Jesus who got arrested for following him. In the U.S. today, Christians don't get arrested. They don't do, at least they don't get arrested for following Jesus. Let me say that. And we'll discuss a few possible reasons for for why Christians don't get arrested today for following Jesus, and they did in the beginning in a moment. But But first, rather than pointing a finger at how the Jewish elites joined religious and civil authority, to oppose the threat of Jesus's vision for for Jewish societies, I'd like to consider our history, how most of Christianity has witnessed this same opposition to Jesus's societal vision. So let's talk about Christianity for a moment. Most scholars point to the, the conversion of Constantine as the period when Christianity began colluding with empire. Feminist scholars, though, point back to patriarchal abuses of women, uh, which have always plagued Christianity far before uh, Constantine. Uh, a great read on this is Christianity, Patriarchy, and Abuse. Uh, it was edited by Joan Carlson Brown and Carol R. Bone. Uh, it's a fantastic book, and those that have uh, taken me up on that recommendation, every one of them have thanked me. Uh, that 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 they that the, that I recommend the book and that they read it. Christianity basically 
embrace the violent use of the sword under Constantine as a justifiable means of, of facing Rome's enemies. And, and, and that grew, to, uh, Christianity in that form grew to become the political head of most of Europe. And Christianity then became the, the empire itself eventually. And, and as, as the right arm of Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestant countries in Europe, uh, imperial Christianity then laid the foundation for the church's endorsement and use of colonialism in the 15th century during the so-called Age of Discovery. And in my 20s, I visited Trinidad and Tobago as a, a young, naive Christian, quote-unquote, preacher. Um, and much to my horror, I discovered history that my Christian education had conveniently left out. I heard stories from the people there of how, rather than condemning colonialism as the, the genocidal rape of indigenous lands and, and of the people, uh, Christianity in the, and the name of Jesus was part, of, part and parcel uh, of colonialism. Colonialism was viewed as, as an acceptable and even preferable means uh, of carrying the gospel around the globe and, and making disciples of all, nat- all nations, uh, baptizing them in the, the name of the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, with the Bible in one hand and a sword in the other, uh, quoting Matthew 18, 29 all along. But the Christian colonialism, it, it, it took lands and resources from indigenous people, viewing them as modern Canaanites and, and treating indigenous peoples themselves as, as capitalist resources that, that could be taken forcefully uh, from their, their lands as slaves. A great history uh, of this is uh, given in Philip Jenkins' book, Laying Down the Sword, Why We Can't Ignore the Bible's Violent uh, Verses. And, and you'll read about it on pages 23 through 42, that chapter there. I can't remember which chapter number it was. Maybe it was chapter 5. Um, but anyway, it's pages 123 through 142. And Christians participated with clear consciences in the slave trade, too. And you can read about this in, in Dolores Williams' book, Sisters in the Wilderness, pages 66 through 68. And after all, their sacred text had given them permission to do so. Leviticus 25, 44 through 46, it states, However, you may purchase male and female slaves from, the, from among the nations around you. You may also purchase the children of temporary residents who live among you, including those who have been born in your land. You may treat them as your property, uh, passing them on to your children as permanent inheritance, and you may treat them as slaves, but you must never treat your fellow Israelites as slaves or this way. So it was okay to to do it to to, uh, other people, but not okay to do it to your own. And this moral stain, it still rests with Christianity today. The end of slavery in the United States was brought about by secularists part with a minority of Christians who were derogatorily labeled as radical Christians. And you can read more about this in Susan Jacoby's book, Freethinkers, A History of American Secularism, and, and Carol Faulkner's book, uh, Lucretia Mott's Heresy, Abolition and Women's Rights in the 19th Century America. And Jim Crow, too, uh, was ended by secular federal legislation that was opposed by the majority of white Christians in the southern states. A fascinating read is, uh, I'll put a link to this article in the e-site, is The Real Origins of the Christian Right, how it wasn't in uh, the pro-life, pro-choice debates, but moreover the segregation debates. Um, uh, the Christian right began over wanting to maintain segregation of and not send their, uh, their, their kids to integrated schools but to, to create institutions of learning where they could maintain a, a, a white segregation. And today, Christianity again has raised its head to support 
the most outspokenly misogynist, racist, xenophobic uh, American administration in modern history. For most of my socially conscious friends, Christianity is seen not just as out of touch with Jesus's societal vision, but actively opposed to a world that resembles what Jesus was working so tirelessly to inspire among his first century followers. Today, in the 1960s and 1970s at least, in North and South America, a different Christian movement was born. And I want to take a moment and talk about that too. Uh, I think there's some hope in this. Latin voices in, in South and Central America and black voices here in the United States, they developed uh, differently focused theologies that would come to be known known as liberation theologies. This is James H. Cohn's God of the Oppressed, page 65. A theological speech is based on the traditions of the Old Testament that must heed the unanimous testimony to Yahweh's commitment to justice for the poor and the weak. Accordingly, it cannot avoid taking sides in politics, and the side that theology must take is disclosed in the side that Yahweh has already taken. Any other side, whether it be the oppressors or the side of neutrality, which is nothing but a camouflaged identification with the rules, is unbiblical. If theology does not side with the poor, then it cannot speak for Yahweh, who is the God of the poor. And that's, uh, again, that's James H. Cohn from here in the States. But Gustavo Gutierrez from from, from uh, Latin America, uh, from South America, in his book, uh, uh, Theology of Liberation, uh, this is the 15th anniversary edition, page 40, under these circumstances, he writes, can it honestly be said that the church does not interfere in the temporal sphere? Is the church fulfilling a purely religious role when it by its silence or friendly relationships, it lends legitimacy to a dictatorial and oppressive government? We discover then that the policy of non-intervention in political affairs holds for certain actions uh, which involve ecclesiastical authorities, but not for others. In other words, this principle is not applied when it is a question of maintaining the status quo, but is wielded when, for example, a lay apostolic movement or a group of priests holds an attitude considered subversive to the established order. So what he's saying there basically is, is when it preserves the status quo, we say we're not, uh, we don't say anything. And, and but, uh, uh, and sometimes we even collude and support. Uh, but, but when, uh, when it, when it subverts the status quo, then we say religion and politics should be kept separate, shouldn't uh, mingle the two. And both statements reveal a change uh, to Christianity's historic complicity with uh, and an empowerment of the status quo. Christian liberation movements were born in solidarity with the oppressed. And, and the, this marked a significant shift in theology away from North American and European-centered interpretations and, and towards theologies being done with, with oppressed within, actually, not just alongside of, but actually within and by oppressed communities themselves. And these the, theologies, they were labeled radical. They were radical expressions of Christianity. And they have yet to become uh, popularly emphasized within the status quo or, or white patriarchal heterosexist Christianity. I mean, these theologies have not gone beyond the halls of academia in most cases in order to reach the people in the pew uh, that are listening to most of North America's weekly evangelical preaching. And today, in the United States, society is 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 markedly our society is markedly a secular society with a 
a plurality of religious beliefs, and, and the religion uh, with the most followers is Christianity. And too often, this kind of Christianity, the, the populist Christianity, is simply concerned with, with spiritual or post-mortem matters, as we've discussed uh, in other podcasts, and, and these matters prove to, to leave systemat- systemic oppression uh, basically unchallenged, and especially for those in positions of privilege. It also leaves those underprivileged in a state of, of pious passivity waiting for the next life. Uh, but if liberation theologies, which are rooted in the experience of the oppressed and informed by uh, their sacred text, are a reflection of what early Christianity possibly was in the first century, I think they sound a clarion call for Christianity to to wrest itself free from its historical failures and to make reparations for the damage that it's done and to begin charting a new course where the poor, uh, women, uh, people of color, those of varied orientations and gender identities, they're no longer the victims of Christianity, but, but the community that Jesus would call us to stand in solidarity with instead. And this is not liberal agenda. It's not a gay agenda. Uh, it's not threatening the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's liberation for the oppressed, according to Luke 4, 18 through 19. And, and as I mentioned above, just a moment ago, uh, Christians are not getting arrested in the United States uh, today. And we have to ask, is that because society has become just and safe and compassionate for everyone so that Christianity has no opposition to a status quo to even mount? Or is it because Christianity, uh, as, it's, as it's done historically, uh, is being complicit in systemic injustices and exploitation and, and harm, being perpetrated out of, of social fear of those that are different. Uh, American Christians have a long way to go before they're being brought before the rulers and the authorities for standing up against injustice and a lack of compassion in our world today. It's more likely that if someone is arrested and being brought to trial today, it will be the Christians who comprise the prosecutors. And so our saying this week uh, points out that we, we have quite a way to go. When they bring you before synagogues, do not be anxious about how or what you'll say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that hour what you are to say. I look forward to uh, when we are well, when this passage becomes relevant uh, to Christianity again. A heart group application this week. I have some passages from the Hebrew Scriptures that I'd like to, to I'd like you to just contemplate together uh, as a group. And James H. Cohn, in our our book of the month for March, God of the Oppressed, he wrote for theologians to speak of this God. They, too, must become interested in politics and economics, recognizing that there is no truth about Yahweh unless it is the truth of freedom, as that event is revealed in the oppressed people's struggle for justice in this world. And that's page 57. So number one, I want you to consider the following passages, Exodus 2, 24 through 25, Exodus 15, 1, Exodus 15, 2, Exodus 19, 4 through 5, Exodus 22, 21, and you can cross-reference that with Exodus 23, 9. And if you, you can't write these down as fast as I'm saying them, I know. I'm going to list all of these in this week's uh, e-site on our, our website at RenewedHeartMinistries.com. Uh, go to our uh, e-sites and articles page under the resources drop-down, and, and you'll see this week's e-site right there. And all these passages will be there. Uh, Luke 22, 23 through 24. And, and what I want you to ask is what do these passages tell us about the Hebrew God's relationship to the 
depressed. And then number two, uh, the narrative states that the, the liberated people eventually became, the, the, the liberated Hebrews eventually became oppressors of the vulnerable. And, and consider these passages from the Hebrew prophets, um, Amos 3, 2, uh, Amos 8, 6 through 8, and 9, 7 through 8, uh, Jeremiah 5, 26 through 28, uh, Micah 6, 8, Isaiah 1, 16 through 17. Look up all those passages and discuss those with your group. And then number three, the Davidic kingly narrative. Uh, the, the, those texts teach us that the king was originally to, to rescue the needy from their oppressors. That's Psalm 72, 12 through 14. And yet we don't see this being the ultimate outcome. In, in Isaiah 3, 13 through 15, uh, it says the Lord comes forward to argue his case and st- uh, and stands to judge his people. The Lord opens the indictment against the e- elders of the people and their officers. They have ravaged the vineyard and the spoils of the poor are in your houses. If n- It is nothing to you that you crush my people and grind the faces of the poor. God's people were to stand with the oppressed uh, like their God did. Um, you can find this in Proverbs 19.17, Proverbs 14.31, and Proverbs 23.10-11. And again, I'll put all these passages for you guys to discuss in the East site. But in the book of Luke, we find these two descriptions of the work of Jesus. Uh, Luke 1, 49-53, and his name is holy, his mercy sure from generation to generation towards those who fear him. The deeds his own right arm has done disclose his might. The arrogant of the heart and the in mind, he has put to rout. He has brought down monarchs from their houses, but the humble have been lifted high. The hungry he has satisfied with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. And Luke four eighteen through 19, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to, uh, to send me to announce good news to the poor, to proclaim release for the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the broken victims go free, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So what does it mean to see Jesus as part of this Jewish liberation tradition? And what does it mean for us today who, who desire to follow this Jewish uh, liberative Jesus? And what if you belong to the community of the oppressed? Uh, what if you don't belong to the community of the oppressed? Does this liberative Jesus call us each to stand in solidarity with those on the undersides and edges of our society? And as I, I mentioned a moment ago, I believe much of Western Christianity has a long way to go before this week's saying holds any relevance to it. At, at most right now, it's a strong rebuke of how far we have drifted from being a community of the oppressed rather than a community of oppressors. But but that doesn't mean that things are hopeless. The, the choice is still ours, and the choice is ours today. As a follower of Jesus, wh- whom are you being called to stand in solidarity with? And who knows, you may find yourself standing before rulers and authorities for living like the Jesus community of old. But, but uh, regardless, um, who is the Jesus of the story asking you to stand in solidarity with today. Thanks for checking in with us this week. And wherever this finds you, keep living in love, keeping up the good work of survival, resistance, liberation, restoration, transformation, uh, till the only world that remains is a world where only love reigns. We have our work cut out for us for sure. Uh, Let's get to it. I also this week want to take a moment and take an opportunity to thank all of you who are supporting the work of Renewed Heart Ministry.
ministries. It's people like yourself that enable us to exist and to be a positive resource in our world in the work of survival, resistance, liberation, restoration, and transformation. And if you're unfamiliar with Renewed Heart Ministries, we're a not-for-profit group um, that's about centering a set of values and ethics in the experiences of those on the undersides and margins of our societies. And we believe that those ethics are informed uh, also by the, the, the sayings of, and the teachings of the historical Jewish Jesus of Nazareth. And everything we do here at Renewed Heart Ministries is done with the purpose of, of making these resources as free as possible. But to do so, again, we need the help of people like yourself. If you'd like to support our work, the work of Renewed Heart Ministries, you can make a one-time gift or become one of our monthly contributors by going to RenewedHeartMinistries.com and clicking on the Donate tab at the top uh, right of our homepage. Or you can mail a contribution to Renewed Heart Ministries, P.O. Box 1211, Lewisburg, West Virginia, 24901. And make sure you also sign up for our free resources on our website. We have a, a monthly newsletter and, and much, much more. And remember, everything we do here is, is for free. Um, every little bit helps, and, and anything that we receive over and above our annual budget, we happily pass on to, to other not-for-profits that are making both systemic and, and personal differences in the lives of, of less privileged within our status quo. And again, for those already supporting our work, thank you, thank you, thank you. We are together making a difference, making our world a safer, more just, more compassionate home for us all. I love each one of you dearly. I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.